The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willett. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience, I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Uh, Welcome back to the Piercing Piercing Wizards podcast. Um, I'm Ryan still, and you are? Lola. Lola. Lola, who is quite sleepy. Quite sleepy, even though I slept for 10 hours. Um, We are currently in Glasgow, but uh, we just got back from Paris. You took me to Paris for the weekend for my birthday, and that was an amazing surprise. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did. I'm glad my surprise worked. Does does anyone ever come back from Paris and they're like, ugh, went to Paris? Um, I don't know this microphone again. So, I had a couple of podcast ideas. Uh, the, the last few episodes that I published were all the episodes that we recorded at the APP conference. Uh, I think they were really nice. I, I don't know if people picked up on it, but I specifically tried to just interview international piercers this year. So, Jason from India, Deacon from Canada, uh, Wikilea representing uh, Chinese piercers, American piercers, but really talking about like the, the China perspective. Um, but... I wanted to record something now to kind of bring it back to just like piercers talking about piercings. And um, my first thought was tongue piercings because I just made a new tongue piercing video that's available at patreon.com slash ryanpba. I just published it the other day. It's about 21 minutes long. I show four different examples of piercing a tongue. Um, Some of them are with clamps, without a clamp, the client sitting up, the client laying back. And there's a lot of extra information that I packed in from um, my previous tongue piercing seminar. I, ha- I haven't instructed that since 2019, but I have a lot of information that I had prepared for it. Um, detailed anatomical information and tips and tricks, and even a handout. There's a handout in the in the video. So uh, that's available now on my Patreon on the Archmage tier. So I wanted to mention it on an episode, but it kind of got me thinking that uh, for the last out of three years at least since the since the start of the pandemic i have pierced hardly any uh tongue piercings but also oral piercings they used to be like a bread and butter kind of a thing um ups and downs over a long career like you know i've, I've done tons of tongues they've been really popular at points the same thing with various lip piercings but since the pandemic mask life and just like general um you know, tastes and trends and body piercing. I haven't really done a lot of oral piercings over the last few years, but that that also got me thinking about what are some of the other things that you might be experienced with that I might be experienced with that we're not really doing much anymore. So through the course of the episode, I also want to talk about cheek piercings, and I also want to talk about um, dermal punching. And I know that uh, Luis Garcia would refer to that as Voldemort, um, because it's like the the tool that shall not be named, but um, I, you know, I, I I had performed plenty of them over my career, and uh, again, that's something I'm not really doing currently. So I, I feel pretty safe and comfortable and confident talking about it. But what are your thoughts on those three things, and where would you like to start the conversation? Um, 
Well, I, I guess with tongue piercing, um, we can kind of talk about the different experiences because my client base for tongue piercing, I feel has definitely shifted over the course of my career. Um, for me, when I started out piercing, the place I was working, we did like a promotional day, um, one day of every month. And that would be, that would probably be the only day that I did tongue piercings. It was always a piercing, um, that nobody wanted to get full price. There were a few piercings that were like that, where, um, we wouldn't typically do them throughout the month, but on kind of a discount day, it would be all tongues all the time. Usually younger people, people that are generally skint. What is, is skint an American word? Poor, broke, hard up for cash. No, skin. I mean, like I, I use that word now because yeah. of you, but Americans don't use that word. Yeah, you know, so like students, young people. On people a budget. Looking, yeah, on, on a budget, that's a, that's a better way of saying it, but skint, um, it would, that would be the day, the only day that I would do tongue piercings pretty much for the, the duration of the month. Obviously this is over a decade ago. And uh, I opened my studio 12 weeks before COVID and the, the lockdowns and the pandemic. Um, and initially when I opened, um, I was doing limited services. So I was prioritizing services that I did often with jewelry that could have cross purposes. So I wasn't doing tongue piercings in that 12 week period because it wasn't a big piercing option for me. So I wanted to prioritize getting stock in and jewelry in for things that were more common. And then of course COVID happened. So I couldn't do tongue piercings legally anyway for the best part of two years. So I had that period not doing them. And then I just kind of left them off the menu for a while because they're they're not my favorite piercing to do. Everyone has a piercing they don't love. But I did start to notice an uptick in people asking for it. And it was a different demographic this time. It was clients who were a bit more mature, who were wanting to have this done and wanting to have it done safely and well. Um, and it was just a very different demographic to what I had the first time with it. So it's kind of been interesting to see things come in and out of fashion, in and out of style, and the changing demographics for those things. So I've just recently, I think at the start of this year actually, um, started offering them again and carrying jewellery for them again. Being a, a primarily threadless studio, threadless jewellery is obviously not appropriate for a tongue piercing. So that meant getting in those products specifically again. Um, and, and so far it's been, been okay. Um, it's been a kind of like a slow gradual reintroduction, which I think works well for me because the first time doing one, having not done one in about three years, it's wild because your, your head knows what it's supposed to do, but doing something again after having not done it for so long, there's this little voice in your head that's like, I hope things go like they're supposed to go. <laughs> okay. I hope things go like they used to when I did this and it was all fine, but there's just that funny little voice there. That's like, who knows what's going to happen? And you're like, well, I, I know what's going to happen, but it's, it's still funny getting back on the horse. Um, tongues. I, I think, uh, since, since the start of the pandemic, I could probably count how many tongue piercings I've done in that multi-year period, uh, on, both hands and still have a couple of fingers left. Like people aren't really asking for it very much. Uh, when I, when I started piercing, I, I almost feel like a, a broken record when I keep saying phrases like, so I've been piercing since the nineties, but like in the nineties, body piercing was extremely different. It was, it was very much a counterculture kind of a thing. And it was a very specific kind of fashion kind of expression. 
and a lot of people wanted to have kind of like a, not necessarily a shock element, but they wanted something um, bold, I guess would be a way to, to put it. So tongue piercings were super popular. Mm -hmm. Tongue piercings, labrette piercings, I, I'm really not doing those much anymore because I think now the, the fashion trends have changed to like dazzling rather than bold. You know, people want tiny little gemmed things. A lot of them want it in a subtle way. So maybe a nostril piercing, maybe an ear piercing. Um, but I think fewer people are drawn to the whole like, I have my tongue pierced. Um, so there were points where I would do a couple in a day, uh, a couple in a week, and then it turned into like a couple in a month. And now it's like just a couple in the last year. Um, but I thought that that would be a perfect piercing to make a, a video about because um, we've talked about it before. We think about the piercers who started in 2019, in 2020, and how different their their perspective of piercing and like what skills make a well-rounded piercer, make a, a, a an experienced piercer. And I don't think a lot of them will, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but a lot of them might not prioritize tongue piercings and other oral piercings in the same way just because they're not getting asked to do it 10 times a day at this point. They're getting asked to do nostrils, septums, whatever, ear piercings 10 times a day. So a lot of their energy and a lot of their education and a lot of their experience is focused on those things. Um, but I've done loads of tongue piercings and, you know, even though I haven't done a lot in the last few years, I still really, I feel really comfortable the whole like, uh, you never forget how to how to ride a bike sort of mm -hmm. a thing. Like I'm still very comfortable doing tongue piercings, but I think during that, especially um, that just after COVID, just after list lifting mask restrictions, the other piercer in my shop, Evan, he, he wanted to just kind of opt out of tongue piercings. Same thing with him, same thing with me, sort of. We're not crazy about working in and around people's mouths sometimes just because of what, whatever various reasons, but... Uh, he kind of dropped tongue piercing from his menu and they all kind of got shoved into my column, but there was still, it was a very narrow column. Well, it's interesting that you should say about that kind of discomfort that's been left after COVID with oral piercings, because it reminds me of the very first time I did genital work. There was like this intimacy and this kind of like delicacy with which you would approach someone and touch someone and it's not that I've become less delicate over the years but you get less nervous with touching people's skin you and were ever delicate <laughs> yes um you get you know like more used to to touching people's skin like it's any other part of the body to the point where you don't even consider it as being different to an earlobe or a nostril or anything else but the first time you approach someone's genitals to do a piercing it's like this you know, very, very intimate boundary that you're crossing with someone where there's a delicacy there that that's new to you. And you still and have that thing in the back of your mind where you're like, just play it cool, just play it cool, you're a professional. Yeah. That's how I felt when I did my first septum piercing after COVID. So because I didn't do tongues for like a whole other year after the restrictions had pretty much dropped, I was kind of over the COVID nerves for the most part. But the first time I did a septum, two years without having done a septum, with the full PPE on, the face, the whole face shield and the mask and the, you know, just everything. I remember just shaking like a leaf, not because I was nervous about how the piercing was going to come out, but because it was like I was touching this body part that had literally been illegal to touch for two years. Mm -hmm. And it was w wild how quickly that had become embedded in my head that it was like, don't look at someone's nose, don't touch someone's nose. If you can see the nose, it's a bad thing. Sure. It, it's crazy how quickly things become like like not allowed in your head. Um, 
that that was probably the strangest thing for me. Um, so I imagine it's similar for a lot of people with tongue piercings, that thing of I'm touching something I'm not supposed to touch. It's it's just wild how quickly that becomes part of what's normal in your brain, mm. given that now, retrospectively, it's not that long a period of time, but it certainly felt like it at the time. I think we have very different experiences because I only had, I think, about a three-month period where we had um, a no oral piercings, no under mask piercings policy in, in my state of New Hampshire. Um, after that, it was really just basically put on the, the business. You know, if you want to do this, that's fine. But, you know, think about risk assessment. Think about what PPE you find is most appropriate and like the, the process that you use for when people can take their mask off and when you can do this, when you can do that. I kind of compared a lot of my um, risk assessment to like dental hygienists things like that. And if they were doing oral cleanings where they were right in somebody's face for an hour at a time, I felt fine, you know, having someone's exposed tongue for five minutes. So I felt fine with my mask, with my face shield, with my PPE and my risk assessment. And I think it just probably felt weirder for the clients because they had that kind of uh, sense of like, this is the first time I'm basically taking my mask off in front of a, essentially a stranger that I'm going to like open my mouth in front of them because people kind of, some people, got that trained kind of sense of like, well, I'm going to cover my mouth if I have to cough or sneeze. I'm going to keep my mask on in public places. So I think it was probably weirder for clients at first mm -hmm. in my studio anyway. Um, but now, uh, like it's, it's just kind of back to normal. Like I feel completely natural piercing a tongue. Um, I, I can just easily fall back on all the various things that, uh, I, I learned and got more comfortable with over a 20 year career. And now I, I think it's um, really important to share those things because certain stuff, certain types of piercing, certain different practices within the, the body art sphere are kind of becoming a, a lost art in a way. And then some of those piercings that just have fallen out of fashion, um, you don't have mentors training new apprentices in the same way. You, you don't, you know, maybe apprentices have never gotten to watch their mentor pierce a tongue. Uh, if they have a mentor at all, sometimes people are just kind of learning through trial and error or um, kind of like self-educating how to do certain piercings. Tongue piercings can be really uh, almost intimidating to learn because they're, they're very difficult to, to manage, you know, very slippery. Um, the, people's anatomy can vary wildly. Like if you look at a hundred noses, chances are you're going to have some slight differences in scale, but most of those hundred nostril piercings anyway are going to be very similar within a, a size range, within a style range, within a, a piercing performance technique. A lot of nostrils might be very similar. A lot of, a lot of tongues, if you look at a hundred tongues, you're going to see a hundred very different tongues. So that's another thing that I like to talk about in the video is anatomical differences, anatomical evaluation, different things about aftercare. Some piercers are almost in a very fortunate way. They, they're, they're kind of like, they're already at that sterile saline kind of thing when it comes to non-oral piercing. So they can fall back on like, well, okay, sterile saline is probably going to be the ideal aftercare for pretty much everything outside of the mouth. But when we're talking about inside the mouth, and people are thinking about mouthwash, like that's something that I really want to talk to people about piercers and clients and really start to re-educate them to just avoid alcohol-based mouthwashes. Avoid anything that's in kind of like the, the Listerine category, the things that burn a lot when you use them, the things that are based on alcohol because they can cause a lot of healing issues. It might not be the end of the world if you're using that as your, your pre-rinse before a piercing, but 
Um, if you're uh, explicitly telling a client to use something like a Listerine, whether it's diluted or not, or if you're just not educating them at all about what types of mouthwashes are and are not appropriate and they're falling back on something like a Listerine, there can be a lot of healing difficulties. So what's your thought process on that or oral aftercare for tongue piercing specifically? Well, I think, I'm, I'm not sure if it's available in the US, but you can direct people to use alcohol-free Listerine products like that. Mm -hmm. But um, I usually try and stress to people the importance of not overusing mouthwash. Ideally, yes, it should be alcohol-free, but I try and put a lot of emphasis on don't rinse with mouthwash in between every meal. Don't be rinsing with mouthwash four or five times a day. Um, if it's part of your regular oral hygiene routine and you want to maintain that, I would suggest instead of rinsing four or five times a day with a mouthwash in between every meal, just rinsing and spitting or rinsing and swallowing with water. Because what I try and emphasize is similar to with genital piercings, what we're trying to do is just maintain a hygienic standard. We're not looking to obliterate all the bacteria in the mouth. You need a healthy amount of bacteria in the mouth. Um, so I think it's also important to clarify because when we're prepping for oral piercings, we're often using something like Corsodil, which is a chlorhexidine or chlorhexanol based mouthwash. We're using that as a skin prep because it has a, a lasting bacteriostatic effect after being used. So it's ideal for the initial piercing, but that type of mouthwash is only designed, I think it's 10 to 14 days for use. Um, at a maximum. When you read the label and look at the instructions for the product, it's not supposed to be like every day for months and months. So even if you're just using it morning and evening, some of these mouthwashes are designed for short-term use. So I like to stress to people who are maybe looking to mimic what I'm doing, I'm just doing this to prep your skin. This isn't something that you would be looking to do during your healing. Similar to how even though you might prep skin with alcohol, you're not wanting people to clean the skin with alcohol once they get home. Sure. Um, so I like to point out to people who are saying, oh, what is it that you're using? Like, you don't need to use the thing that I'm using. Yeah. Um, and certainly not for long-term use as well. Right. Like, you know, it might be perfectly appropriate to prep a skin with iodine, but you wouldn't ever want a client using iodine as their aftercare product. So for something like a tongue piercing, you, you want to think that you have healthy bacteria in the mouth, you have a healthy pH balance in the mouth. So um, if you're not familiar with the terms resident bacteria and transient bacteria, that can be a, a good um, uh, you know, area to, to do a little bit more research on. Um, but as Lola said, like you have healthy bacteria in your mouth that just maintains good oral hygiene. And if you're using something as a prep that's strong and, and you're getting like a strong bacterial reduction, that can be appropriate because you're going to break the skin. So sometimes you want to try to reduce at least that transient bacteria. Um, when I'm prepping a tongue too, I also uh, emphasize that I like to do um, basically like a mucus reduction. The surface of your tongue is kind of kind of gross, kind of slimy. You have you know a, a mucusy layer, a dead skin cell layer. Uh, some people that want to clean their mouth extra good, maybe before date night or something like that, you might brush your teeth. Uh, you might floss, but you might also brush or scrape your tongue because that will really improve your breath uh, and kind of eliminate some of the, the transient bacteria that you pick up over the course of the day through meals, through anything else that, that might enter your mouth. Um, so when I'm going to pierce a tongue, I'll just take dry, sterile gauze. No prep materials. I'm not cleaning inside the mouth with any kind of like a, a PCMX or iodine or, or anything else harsh. It's just dry, sterile gauze and I'm scrubbing the tongue to try to remove some of those excess dead skin cells or that mucousy layer, and I'm getting a really significant bacterial reduction with that, 
I'm also going to be having them use a, a, a gentle mouthwash. Again, I'll use an alcohol-free mouthwash. I might not go so far as the, the chlorhexidine, which is perfectly fine for a prep. But again, for, for aftercare, it's, it's way too harsh, just like an alcohol mouthwash would be way too harsh. Because if you're using those really strong chemicals that strip away the resident healthy bacteria and the unhealthy transient bacteria, after a while, you're going to create a, a, a pH imbalance in the mouth. And um, since you're stripping away that healthy resident bacteria, which is part of protecting good oral hygiene, you can get things like... Um, an opportunistic yeast infection. So some of these terms might, might sound a little bit yucky, but we do need to talk about it. Um, a, a couple other terms that you might want to look into for a bit more education would be thrush. I think parents might be pretty, uh, pretty familiar with a, a condition like thrush because uh, it's, it's very common in babies and children. You can get a, a pH imbalance in the mouth that basically makes the tongue look whitish or yellowish or kind of, you know, gunky looking basically. Um, that can be a, a type of oral yeast infection from uh, Candida albicans, which is a, a fungal yeast. If you strip away all that healthy bacteria that's in the mouth, it can't eliminate some of the, the, uh, the unhealthy bacteria. So you can get that Candida albicans, it can start to grow, that fungal yeast can start to grow kind of out of control, and you can essentially get an oral yeast infection on the surface of the tongue, which presents as kind of like a, a whitish, yellowish, mucusy you know, gunky layer on the surface of the tongue. So a big problem that I had um, when I was suggesting Listerine, again, I started in the 90s and et cetera, et cetera. We didn't know as much about aftercare and, and prep then as we might know now. So I was still telling people, okay, I'm going to have your rinse with some Listerine before, and then I'm also going to have your rinse with Listerine during the healing process. Um, it, but that could kind of create that susceptible fungal yeast infection. When people would see that, they would think, oh, I'm not cleaning my tongue good enough, so I'm going to use more of this harsh mouthwash, which would just kind of amplify the problem. They were just continuing that pH imbalance or worsening that pH imbalance, making the thrush worse and worse and worse uh, to the point where it was really difficult. Sometimes people would just abandon their piercings because they didn't know what was going on. So now part of my good oral hygiene with aftercare practices is to kind of explain a very shortened version of that. I'm using this mouthwash just as my prep. I want you to use something a bit more gentle since you'll be using it a little bit more frequently. But my maximum would probably be about two to three times a day with an aftercare, with a mouthwash kind of a thing. I would say maybe once at the beginning of the day, once at the end of the day, maybe once in the middle of the day too, but that's, the, that's it maximum for using any kind of a mouthwash. And then as, Lo, as Lola said, uh, if they want to rinse any extra, just a cold water rinse. Uh, you can either spit, you can uh, swallow the water, but just, just a water rinse after meals, after snacks. You don't need to go crazy and just like flood your mouth with mouthwash all day, every day. Hi. Hi. Anything you want to add to that? No. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the Piercing Wizard Podcast. Well, sometimes Thanks for listening. You don't, you, don't, you don't give me an indication that you're going to ask me a question soon, so I just sit and, and listen. I'm not thinking about the next thing I want to say. That's fair. I I started piercing in professionally in 2010. Notice I say professionally because it didn't count when I was sticking pins through my fingers in high school. Right. Um, so in 2010, and to me, it doesn't feel like that long ago. And I don't feel like a very experienced person. I do in some ways, but in other ways I don't. Maybe that's because I'm comparing myself to you and you're so much, you're much, much older than me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're so much older than me. Thank um, you. <laughs> Yeah, happy birthday for yesterday. Yeah, thank you. 44. Yeah. Um, so 
when you say things like, oh, there are piercers started in 2019 who, who are now apprenticing people, um, it's kind of shocking to me in a way to think about things in those terms that there are piercers training piercers and again it's not a criticism like you know work how you want to work and learn and teach in the way that works best for you but they didn't work in that pocket where there was no fine jewelry market in the UK it didn't exist and like how you were saying about piercing in the 90s when I started piercing in 2010 it was all about volume you could only get a plain bead or maybe a bead with a little glued in gem on it. So your your only avenue to really like emphasize your look was volume. Give <clears> me three tongue piercings, nine lip piercings, multiple nostrils, mul you know, eight helix piercings. It was all about building volume. Um, and so with that kind of work, you get that gradual introduction of different shapes and sizes and styles of jewelry, and you get a good understanding of what works and what doesn't and that kind of thing. And I think that you are right in that there is a, a little bit of a gap there in terms of the... Paul King calls it the piercing family tree. I like that expression, um, where there's like sometimes just a, a little bit of information that's missing. Um, and you're probably right with tongue piercings. I think if things keep going the way they are, it'll be almost like genital work in the sense that there'll be a huge gap in people that offer them and people that don't just by virtue of, oh, well, they're not that popular and I never learned or the person teaching me didn't do them and, and now I don't do them. Well, I, I think generationally, uh, it's it's seen now as completely appropriate for a piercer to have a very selective menu. To say, like, I, I might be an incredibly experienced piercer, but with more of a limited range of piercings. Uh, when I started piercing, and I think when you started piercing too, a body piercer was a full-service body piercer. And, you know, maybe you wouldn't have as many opportunities to do some variations as others, but you were kind of expected to be able to, to do just about anything. Uh, and then I think over time it's become more and more acceptable to say like, well, I would really rather just work from the neck up, or I would rather just kind of specialize in ears and nostrils, and, and that's about it. And I think especially in a world where um, really nice jewelry has gotten a little bit pricier, uh, some people don't want to invest in a wide range of, of jewelry options for uh, something that might bring in a, a smaller profit margin, something that they might only do a handful of times a year. It might not be worth it for them to in invest a lot of money into I, those piercings. I think that's completely fine. Like I, rec I, I recommend that in my transitioning from externally threaded jewelry class, because yeah. that's exactly what I did um, moving to threadless and opening forest is, mm -hmm. With, with the range that you're almost expected to carry now, a minimum in terms of gems and opals and variety and a lot of the value in what you're doing is tied up with the range and the selection that you have, unless you come from money or have the ability to, to get a substantial investment, um, you're not going to be able to open up a studio, at least not in the UK, being able to offer absolutely everything and a range of different um, ornamental attachments. It was different in the past where you would just be looking to get different sizes and you could maybe extend your range to everything. But being able to carry every piece of jewelry for every piercing in an inclusive size range and have alternates for everything and have some threadless and some threaded, you're talking about a massive, massive investment that the average body piercer isn't going to have unless, as I say, they have a source of funding. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people that are starting from the ground up with nothing, that's not going to be realistic. And so making smart choices with what's on your piercing menu, basically, is not just a good idea. It might be the only way that you can build what you're doing. And I added back in stuff like genital work and I added back in stuff like tongue work as the, the business grew. 
So I don't want anybody to hear this and interpret it as saying, oh, you should be able to do all these things. Like, that's that's a lovely idea, but people that learned in the 90s and the early 90s, they learned in a, a very different environment. Mm -hmm. So be adaptable and do things that are going to allow you to have a sustainable business model that allows for growth if you can't jump in at 100%. The main reason I bring it up isn't to shame piercers no. because I also think it's completely appropriate for people to select what they want and, and don't want to offer or what they can and cannot offer. But I think that um, long term, I think that it, it it might mean that some some piercers can go an entire career without ever offering a certain category of piercing. And I, again, I don't see anything really wrong with that. Um, but I think it's just generationally where, where I came from as a body piercer. I still see it as a full, a full service uh, profession. Mm. So I pride myself on being very versatile, working on essentially any part of the body. Any, anything that I see is safe and viable. Um, but I think that that might kind of be a good point to transition into the, the next piercing that we want to talk about. And it's cheek piercings because mm. um, I have performed cheek piercings. Um, I still have a range of jewelry in my studio that's appropriate for cheek piercings, but I do not offer cheek piercings. Um, I, I don't even entertain the option of piercing cheeks on clients. If someone emails or calls or talks to me in the studio and mentions that they want it, I will politely decline. Um, I will give them as much information as they want as to why I don't offer them, but uh, I don't offer cheek piercings in my in my shop anymore, and I haven't in... I'd like to say at least five years, but I think realistically it's probably more like seven to eight years since I've actually done a, a set of cheek piercings. So what's your what's your thought process on cheek piercing? Or before we move on, do you have anything else you want to include for tongue piercings? I would like to take a bathroom break. Okay. okay. The Piercing Wizard podcast is brought to you by me, Ryan Willett. I'm doing a webinar about bevel theory on Sunday, August 20th. If you want to sign up or get more info, go to my website at ryanpba.com. Anyway, we're recording again, okay? Be mindful of the... Anyway, um, so uh, is there anything that you would like to include for tongue piercings before we move on to... No, cheeks? I think we I think we covered everything we wanted to talk about. Okay, well let's clap cheeks then. Um, so, when was the last time you performed cheek piercings? At least three years ago. Okay, so are you talking like just before the pandemic then, like in forest? I don't think I've performed a set in forest. No, because again, that wouldn't have been a line of jewelry. Sure. You know, opening up forest, I I literally had jewelry for. I don't want to digress and and talk about you know starting up because it's a it's a whole other topic. Could have fooled me. What do you mean? No, you said I don't want to digress. Well, I d so don't make me. So let's talk about something else. Well, no, no, like continue. Um, so no, I I wouldn't have started with cheek piercing jewelry. That wouldn't have been on my shopping list. Okay, so probably more like four years realistically. I guess. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, so and I I chose to stop offering them because. I, I don't, this is where it's difficult for me. I don't have any problem performing cheek piercings. I like performing cheek piercings. I hit, really hit the wall with my customer service. The and troubleshooting I'm, aspect, is that I'm weird? A, yeah, yeah, kind of, well, kind of. I'm a big believer that if you're not prepared to put the time in with a client and give them all the support they need before and after, you shouldn't do the service and you shouldn't take the money ultimately. 
and I definitely got to that point. Um, not just in terms of troubleshooting, but in terms of uh, before I would even offer the piercings. So um, when I started piercing, cheek piercings would just be like any other piercing. You know, we would just do cheek piercings like the same as anything else. Um, they were available from age 16. There was no special requirement for them, just the same as anything else. And then uh, I think for insurance purposes and well, just because of things like the, the permanent facial scarring, it was then moved to 18. Um, and so when that happened, I remember, this would have been in my early 20s, getting into an argument uh, with a client's parent. And the parent was saying, you're discriminating against my 17 year old because you're not letting them have this piercing done. So I was accused of being discriminatory for enforcing an 18 plus policy. And that was the first hurdle. And then, you know, just as my knowledge grew on the risks and hazards associated with this, because like a lot of people, when I started piercing, there were things that I didn't know. Um, I said, well, I, I would like to have a mandatory waiting period for this. I would like there to be, even if it's just the next day, I'm gonna go over some of the risks with you. I want you to go home. If you still wanna have this done, come back tomorrow and I'll do it for you, which in my head was very reasonable. And then I was accused of being discriminatory. I don't know if there's a pattern here um, because people were saying, oh, so I have to come in twice and I have to pay to get the bus in twice or get the train in twice just so that I can be sure that's really patronizing that you're making me think about this. And I would actually print off a little sheet of the risks and hazards in writing and give it to people and say, I wanna give you this sheet, um, go home with it, just really think about it. Um, and then, you know, if you're still wanting to have this done. And what I, would, what I would also do sometimes is I would put like a little mark on the person's cheek um, and say, look, this is where roughly it's gonna be. Cause some people would think it would be back at their earlobes practically. I would be like, this is where it's gonna be. These scars could potentially be here forever. So go home, sleep on it if you're happy. Stop doing that when someone went down the street with the marks I made and got pierced somewhere else. Um, so, you know, then that stopped. Uh, and then I was like, well, you know what? I'm only gonna do this on regular clients and that's gonna be the rule. I'm just gonna do this for regular customers um, that, have, that have been in a few times and that I have a good relationship with. That got the, mo the most pushback and the most complaints um, because people would, other piercers would refer clients to me and I would say, I'm really sorry, but I don't actually offer this service. It's just for regular clients only kind of thing. Cause they would say, oh, you did so-and-so's cheeks and they would lose their shit. Um, I would, when I would say, you know, this is only for regular customers and they would say, why are you trying to gouge more money out of me? Why are you saying that I have to come in and get all, well, oh, can I just have my earlobe done then just so I've had something done by you so that you'll do it. And it was like, I was the most ludicrous, outrageous arsehole for daring to suggest that I not permanently scar someone's face who I didn't know, who had just come in for the first time on their you know, 18th birthday or whatever, who was losing their shit over having to get the bus in twice, even though cheeks require two, two three, four or more downsizes. And this is before I've pierced anyone. This is before I've done any piercing. So like, even the, you know, the troubleshooting is, is a whole other thing. And I'm, I'm happy to troubleshoot any piercings that I do, but that, had its own equally big, you know, layer of, of issues and problems. I don't really want to mention anyone specific in case, you know, they, they hear it and know that I'm still not <laughs> holding not, a grudge. I'm still, like, still raging, but no. So, you know, the similar thing with the, with the aftercare and you know what it's like when people just refuse to do the thing that you suggested and you've asked, mm -hmm. but keep coming in with problems and you keep reiterating, well, 
you, you got to stop putting makeup on this. It's covered in, oh, I'm not wearing makeup. It's covered in makeup, you know, that conversation. But to be fair, I have that conversation with nostrils all the time. So it's, it's not so much even after. It was really just the hostility and, and the issues that I would have before um, that were probably the hardest for me. And I definitely have been feeling the pull of going back to offering cheek piercings. I feel like I'm in a very different place. I'm in a private studio. I have a wholly private waiting list for genital work, um, which means, you know, you can't self-book. You have to go through this process. And I feel that's a little bit different and that's been working really well for me. So I've, I've kind of been thinking about it because it was something I liked being able to offer. It was something I liked being able to provide a safe option for for people. Um, but at the same time, it's it's just still that worry of, I don't know if I want to go back to people fighting with me when I say no. It's, it's easier now that I don't do walk-ins to kind of like restrict that as much as possible, but there was so much hostility and, and just such a sense of, I can't believe that you're patronizing me by making me jump through all these hoops. And it was like, it's, it's not patronizing, it's being honest with you about the risks. Um, and it's almost like, there's so much onus now on the piercer. I mean, there should have always been, but to properly risk assess with people, to properly make them aware of everything that could happen, to get informed consent, and you do all of that, and people are raging about it. So it's it's just one of those situations that I found too frustrating, personally. Well, um, I really wanted to include it in in a podcast episode because we have our private conversations mm -hmm. and you mentioned that you wanted to bring it back and my 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 entire retort was basically <laughs> why <laughs> you know because um they it's not that they're all problematic mm -hmm. but the amount that are problematic compared to any other piercing is much higher and i i don't even really see them as risks i see them as consequences mm. basically because i think that um Maybe not 100% of people will have the specific problems we're most likely about to talk about, but uh, I, I think the majority of them will. I, I, I think, like, the whole makeup thing brings me back to, like, why I stopped doing cheek piercings. The, the last set that I ever performed was on... I don't remember how I had a connection to the person. They were maybe somebody's partner that I knew or I, uh, somebody on, on social media that I had interacted with, but it was somebody where like they knew where I was, who I was, that they could access me for information, for troubleshooting, for checkups, for all those things. We had a, a lengthy conversation about um, what at the time I would see as like a potential risk. Whereas now I see it as like almost a likelihood and uh, when it comes to people who wear makeup, people who put really anything consistently on their face, it's going to get on cheek piercings. So if we're talking about moisturizer, um, facial wash, uh, foundation, any other kinds of makeup, it's going to get on a cheek piercing. And the thing about a cheek piercing compared to a lip piercing is it's a very complex anatomical structure compared to those other things. So if you, if you think of a lip, really essentially anywhere on the lower lip or the upper lip, on the outside you'll have skin, on the inside you'll have like a membranous kind of rubbery tissue, and then inside you will have muscular tissue. But that's that's going to be about the majority of it. You know, there might be some small blood vessels, um, there might be other things if you're talking about like um, different than standard placements, something that's very deep or something that's done with a very large size. But if we're talking about standard lip piercings, 
um, philtrum piercings, librette piercings, side lip piercings, upper and lower lip. Typically you're going to be going through some skin, some muscle, and that's about it. When we're talking about cheeks though, what would you say the thickness of a cheek is compared to a lip? Maybe like four to five times thicker? At it depends least. on the person because my, my cheeks were very thin because okay. I don't have a lot of, of meat there, but some people do have very thick, thick cheeks. full cheeks. So if we're talking about a significant difference, whether it's, you know, a certain something that you can say four or five, ten, whatever times thicker, um, it's significantly thicker, but you also have a, a, a large amount of glandular tissue in your cheeks that you don't have in your lips. So you have the muscular tissue, but you have several different layers of different muscles um, overlapping, um, pressing against each other, pressing against each other. Uh, you have that glandular tissue. You have a lot more blood vessels that are kind of spider webbed through your cheeks, uh, salivary glands, all these different things. And that means that you're going to have potentially a higher likelihood of, of piercing through one or piercing very close to one. You can cause pressure. You can cause them to become impacted. Uh, you can cause all different kinds of issues with, with glandular drainage. You can have all different kinds of complex issues with a cheek piercing that you might not necessarily be getting in a lip piercing. So you do have those clients that come in being like, well, I have my lip pierced. I have my tongue pierced. How different can it be? And my answer is like, Extremely. Mm -hmm. It's extremely different. And it's not like I'm going to sit a client down and make them take an anatomy class in, in order to qualify for a piercing. But I think sometimes people don't hear the information you give them because their excitement is blocking it. Mm -hmm. Their excitement or their previous experiences thinking like, well, I have these other things, so naturally I'll be able to heal anything else, whether it's more complex, less complex, whatever. Um, but cheek piercings, I just see it as a higher likelihood because you're going through a... a a greater mass of more complex anatomical tissue. And that tissue as well, you know when you, you push out your lip piercings and you can see more of the post and your lip thins and thickens as you make facial expressions and things. If you think about that on the scale with lip piercings, um, your lip is gonna double in half in terms of size constantly as you're talking, as you're chewing, as you're just going about your day. So there's this huge fluctuation of tissue. If you think about how a nipple goes from being hot to cold, it's not unusual for parts of the body to almost double in size with that kind of thing throughout the day. Whereas, <laughs> or more than double. <laughs> whereas with a, a cheek piercing, Penis. it's almost constant. That constant fluctuation of a massive amount of very complex, very dynamic tissue. Um, and it's like you say, I think people just don't want to hear it. And there's almost a false sense of security that comes with getting pierced at a reputable studio now where people don't think the risks apply to them because right. I'm going somewhere safe and I'm wearing good jewelry. It's a five-star shop and I, I gave them a hundred bucks. I can pierce you with the best jewelry that's verified, that's implant grade, that's mirror polished, I can it, that's an appropriate size. I can nail the angles on your piercing. All that does is give you the best shot at it healing doesn't mean that it's going to heal or that you're not going to have these complications and problems and I think that's the problem is people almost think that you are just rattling off the risks like there's a one in a thousand chance 
with cartilage piercings, I, I obviously cheek's not a cartilage, but when I'm doing cartilage piercings, when we're talking about aftercare and risks and hazards, um, I like to make people aware, you know, there's there's quite a high likelihood you might develop a little lump or a bump on this whilst it's healing. Come in and see us, come in and contact us. We'll see what's going on with it and give you some help and advice. So they're aware like this actually might happen. It's not like a sign this thing to say that I've let you know that there's a one in a thousand chance. Like there's a total chance this might happen and get in touch with us if it does. So with cheek piercings, I think that people think you're just ticking boxes and, and keeping yourself right when actually you're like, no, I'm telling you that this might happen to you. Are you okay with that? Because that's what informed consent is. And it's almost like people don't realize that in the moment. And that's a big point of frustration for me is that people's memories can be very selective when they're excited. Like you say, they're not taking things in. Um, and it's different when when you would work on clients in the past and they would say, hey, I, there would almost be like an experimentation type vibe where people would be like, or like, like that lovely orbital project that you shared the other day, where you would do something with someone. 10,000 likes. <laughs> and, uh, and you would say, listen, there, there's a chance this might not heal. Like it's going to look great, but this might only be a temporary thing. And they would be like, yeah, absolutely. I just want to try it out. And there would be that um, mutual understanding. It almost feels like that's harder to find these days. Um, people just want the end product and they think that the risks and hazards that are associated are just kind of like, you know, things that you have to get out of the way. They don't take them on board as you might develop an abscess on this and it could take months to clear up. Uh, I don't want to go too far down the path of like surface anchors and surface piercings, but mm -hmm. I, I think when people come in and ask for those, it's easier for me to get them to understand the concept of rejection because it's a very visible thing that they might have seen more frequently. I think people who are piercing fans, piercing collectors, I think a lot more of them are going to be familiar with something like rejection versus something like an abscess. So when I'm talking to people about surface piercings and say like, okay, it's not like I can give you a, like a mathematical certainty, but let's say like you have maybe a 60-40 chance of being able to heal this variation successfully or an 80-20 chance of this. But like, you know, the, the, the negative side of it is a really significant scar from rejection. So a lot of them can kind of see it that way and be like, oh, okay, I, I get that's probably why I don't see a lot of surface piercings because of the higher likelihood of these things happening with these specific circumstances. But with cheek piercings, if you say abscess, I don't think many people even understand what an abscess is. So when I was talking to people about that, I would say like, well, do you know what an abscess is? Maybe yes, maybe no. You know what acne is, and acne is in a way a very small version of an abscess. So imagine you had some, like a monster version of that on a piercing on your face, you know? And imagine that it's a very problematic, um, uh, reoccurring kind of issue. You, you might not be able to, to clear it up. You can have pus drainage, um, you can have saliva drainage, you can have all kinds of things. Like that glandular tissue, those glands, uh, can become impacted. You can end up with fluid that's trapped under the surface. Your body can try to basically wall off that excess fluid um, in like basically a, a lump of scar tissue, a bubble of scar tissue. So you might have something that's a, akin to a giant cystic acne pimple inside your cheek. And it can be very difficult. Um, it, it might not actually be possible to completely clear it up without abandoning the piercing, without having medical intervention, without having other kinds of things. Um, there have been stories about, uh, you know, piercings that 
people are drooling out of their cheeks on the exterior and there's really nothing they can do about it even after the piercing is removed they're still drooling out of a out of a basically an abscess or a fistula or a hole in their their cheek you can have um, permanent scarring and I don't mean like a rejection scar like a little dot like you can have like a permanent scarred dimple that can almost look like a chicken pox scar a, a pockmark scar from really bad cystic acne and it can be permanent and I wouldn't call it disfiguring but I would say that plenty of people wouldn't choose to have that kind of mark on their face um, so it's difficult to get people to really understand the the consequences to something like a cheek piercing because it might not be comparable to more um, simplistic to more you know common body piercings and things that they might have more personal experience with so uh, after a while once you see the problem once you might see it as a fluke and I'm talking as the body piercer once you see that problem as a body piercer once um, you might see it as a fluke like oh okay you know it's that one out of a hundred but like I haven't done a hundred cheek piercings I did maybe six sets maybe seven maybe eight max sets and I would say um, half of them uh, became very problematic to the point where I was like this isn't worth it for me it's not worth it for my reputation and like clients it's not like they were beating down my door for it some of them really wanted it uh, some of them I could sit them down and be like look this is what could potentially happen and like oh, okay well I don't want it anymore then um, but the clients who went through with it and had those problems they kind of not so much blamed me but it's not that they accepted that they accepted the possibility of these consequences where you know it was like I, I told you I sat you down for 20 minutes and I explained that this exact scenario might happen and then that scenario happened and then they would get kind of disappointed in me mm -hmm. maybe not upset but they were disappointed in a way where they're like I can't believe this happened you're supposed to be Ryan Willette, Precision Body Arts, this really good studio with this great reputation. And it's like, yeah, well, the great reputation part of it is giving you informed consent. And then you can still consent to those those risks, whether, you know, whether you fully understand them or not, apparently. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that I'm irresponsible. But it got to the point where I was confronted with those scenarios enough where it was like, this isn't worth it for my income or my reputation. Like, why am I why am I doing these still? So I stopped doing them. Right. I think that that's something that, like yourself, it's a horrible feeling when you get that feeling of profound disappointment from somebody when mm -hmm. you know that you did your absolute best for somebody. Um, and, you know, everyone's a critic on the internet as well. So there's now those situations where it's like, well, you know, this person thinks this about it. And you're like, what, this person who wasn't in the room, who wasn't in the scenario that's never met either of us. Brilliant. Um, so, so there's that pressure as well. And the best that you can do is do everything you can to get that informed consent from people. But there is that unfortunate short-term memory issue where people either don't believe what you're saying, don't remember what it was they agreed to, even when it was in writing. Or they have that, um, they have the whole like, well, that wouldn't be me. Um, and it's, it's like you say, I like to go into things, uh, like I do genital piercing for people who sometimes have to travel if they're not in a location where there's a piercer that does genital work or, um, you know, if they're living in a very rural area. And one of the things that I discuss with clients um, over email before they come in is, do you understand if you have X, Y, or Z problem, your recourse should be removing this. Like, you're going to need to remove this in this situation if you can't get in for an upsize, if you're experiencing certain issues and problems, that that's a gamble that comes with having this type of work done when you can't get in the same day for support and care. 
Like, do you understand that risk? And sometimes I'll just decline work altogether and say, I think that this is too high risk if you're not able to come in for support or access the stu any studio for support. And sometimes I'll say like, you know, are you okay if there's not a major risk other than losing the piercing? We'll talk about it in advance. But I really try and make sure people understand like, do you understand this could, you could just be throwing your money away here, having it done and it might not work. Are you aware of that? Um, and doing that in writing, I think helps a little bit. It gives people a chance to digest the information, but it is a real problem, I think, now that people struggle to understand consequence. They struggle to understand that we can eliminate the jewellery being a problem by using great jewellery. We can eliminate, um, you know, certain placement errors being a problem with good placement and good technique. But that's about it. Once you leave and, you know, the next 12 months, even longer of healing, we, we're not in control of that and we don't have secret information we're not telling you. So when people get in touch sometimes with certain issues, we can offer help and support. But if it's an ongoing issue, I think sometimes people think there's like a secret solution that we're going to present them with. We don't have a secret solution. If we did, we would have led with that. Um, all we can do is provide ongoing support and care with things like jewellery maintenance and, you know, checking in on progress and that kind of thing. Um, so I think that's something that has definitely intensified over the last 10 years or so, um, is it's harder than ever to get clients to understand if they're giving conformed consent or not. Well, the, the it resonates with me a lot with, with what you said, because the, the last set of cheek piercings I ever performed was a really similar scenario. It was, it was that client that I had talked to. Um, they came in, we did the whole sit down conversation of like, look, I, I don't really do these a lot anymore. I'm, I, I'm happy to do them for you, but I want to, I want to tell you, the whole book about what could happen and you know really leading like my my biggest piece of information that i was leading with at the time was number one understand downsizing and probably the need for multiple downsizing but number two uh which probably equal in weight was the whole like makeup you got to keep makeup off of it so this person came in they did their i think they did their one first downsizing and when they came in for that they had makeup all over their jewelry and I was like, okay, I, they are still healing. You're still months away from healed, but they're still healing. We're going to do your downsize. Everything looks kind of how I would expect it. But sadly, that also includes, I kind of expected it to have makeup all over it because you were a person wearing makeup when you came in for your initial piercing. So I had to try to re-educate the importance of like, you got to keep makeup off of it. You know, foundation, especially it's a, it's a very fine powder or it's that kind of like pasty kind of like, you know, cream sort of. That can get caked on to jewel. Do you describe makeup? I know a little thing about makeup <laughs> myself. I watch Drag Race occasionally. Um, so, but you know, if it gets on the jewelry, it's going to end up in the piercing. Uh, so it it got on the jewelry. It got in the piercing. I think when people have certain facial piercings and they start to get a little bit red or a little bit inflamed, and I think it's this like death by a thousand cuts kind of a thing where it's like one day they're like, oh, I'm just going to sneak a little bit of makeup on it because I have a date or I'm going to work or I'm going to have a, a photo for social media and I don't want the redness to show up. So I'm just going to hide it with makeup just once. What harm will it do? They don't burst into flames from touching with makeup once. So then they think like the next time, like, oh, it was fine last time. So the next time's okay. And then like 20 times into it, when they're slathering their irritated piercing and, and makeup to try to hide the irritation, uh, the makeup gets in there. It gets worse and worse and worse. 
So the person came in for their downsize and I really had to say like, look, you have foundation caked on like the thread point. Like when I, when I took the ball off, there was like makeup stuck in there. I was like, you really got to keep, you know, makeup off of this because it, it's going to be a problem. You're going to get it in inside your cheek and then it's going to be all kinds of problematic. And that's exactly what happened. So we did their downsize. They went away. A couple of weeks later, they were traveling. And it was that same scenario that you kind of bring up is like they weren't anywhere where I could help them at all. They were in a completely different state, hours and hours and hours away. Um, and when they messaged me, it was one of my closed days. I think it was a Sunday. You know, they, they emailed, hey, I've got this problem. They sent me a picture and it was like a really significant problem. One of those problems where if you had seen it, even if it was your closed day, you'd probably say like, how soon can you get to the shop? You need to come in right now for some longer jewelry or some something because like no amount of saline or whatever else is going to fix your, your issue. And they were like, well, I'm in a completely different town. I'm, I'm seeing a show. What do I do? Thankfully, it was a town where I knew a, a really excellent level, very experienced piercer. Um, I sent them to them and I, I messaged the piercer ahead of time. Hey, you know, my client is having this specific issue with a cheek piercing. Thankfully, they were a complete professional in every sense of the word. And they, they understood they had experience with cheek piercings and they knew the kind of problematic scenarios um, that, that this was. And um, so they, they had my client come in and they put in jewelry that was almost twice as long as the initial jewelry because like as soon as they went to like do anything it puffed right up it was already really swollen and when they took out that partially downsized jewelry it just ballooned up so they put in this huge long piece of jewelry so that it could drain and that was only just long enough it wasn't like a just this random long thing that they had sitting around in a drawer like they put in the appropriate size but it was about twice as long the piercing drained and drained and drained for several days uh, but the piercing never got better. Once the drainage kind of subsided, um, then it basically just left behind that kind of permanently problematic cheek piercing. You know, that scarred, abscessed, continuously gunky, never really getting back on the, the right track kind of cheek piercing. Uh, and that was it. That was the nail in the coffin for me where I was like, you know what, I'm not going to do these anymore. Like, I don't want to make it all about money. But it's like, how much money have I ever made in, in cheek piercings? Um, and then compare that to like the amount of time that I put into piercing people, but then the amount of time that I put into all the downsize visits, all the troubleshooting emails, mm -hmm. all the troubleshooting uh, studio visits, all the little checkups, all the everything, like financially, not at all worth it. But then the other side of it, the reputation side of it, not at all worth it because you have those people out there in the world with this thing right on their face that's very problematic and people are going to look at that and be like, who did that? And it's like, oh yeah, Ryan of Precision did it. And they're like, well, he obviously doesn't know what he's doing. So it was just one of those things where after a while, like, why, why did I want to be doing it anymore? Yeah, I think that um, sometimes it's almost shocking to people when they realize you can just choose to decline a service because it's it's not equitable for you and it's not worth the risk to the studio to be offering it. And it's almost like a, well, you have to do this. Sure. Like you, you actually don't, you can make those decisions. Um, as long as you're kind of making them fairly and you're not picking and choosing when you want to, um, you know, Right. You're not like you're wearing a Yankees hat. I'm not going right. to pierce you. That's what, I, that's what I'm saying is like if it's a rule that applies to everyone or it applies evenly in a way that's very clear and straightforward, you know, I, th I think that that's fine. And when it comes to cheek piercings, it's, it's so hard to get people to understand that something like an abscess, you'll always 
pretty much always see them on the bottom of a piercing because of gravity, because of the way that fluid, kind of like drains, fluid yeah. pus drains down. And it's not that that sack, if you can picture an abscess in your mind, it's not that that is full of makeup and it's not that you have to be wearing a lot of makeup. You're talking about a little tiny bit of foreign Brit or degree, grit or debris that gets into the, into the cheek piercing and then it doesn't get back out. And then your body starts to, as you mentioned earlier, kind of like create a little barrier, a little wall around it to Encapsulation. protect Encapsulation. Encapsulate this little bit of grit or dirt or debris to try and protect you, um, which is a completely natural, healthy thing your body does. Only the bacteria that's in that little abscess, it's going to grow and it's going to get bigger and you're going to produce more and more fluid and you're going to start to produce pus. And that's what's going to cause the abscess to get bigger. So... If you think about the amount of movement on a cheek piercing, on a wound that's that size, you have just the natural oil and debris that's going to be on your skin, even if you're not wearing makeup. If you are wearing makeup, makeup's not appropriate to put on broken skin for that very reason. And then there's the inside of your cheek as well. So there are these avenues feeding bacteria into the abscess, and that's why it's very hard to get rid of. Sure. And they can just become permanent because it's impossible to get the abscess to fully drain and close because it's constantly being basically fed. Um, so, and, and I don't want to imply that these kinds of problems are, you know, in any way gender specific, makeup specific, because not. I, I, I've seen problems like that happen from mm -hmm. just oils and dirt on the face and, and, you know, facial wash and things that might come in contact with it through showering. And as you mentioned with your last piercing experience, these are issues that can happen months after they've they've been in to see you. Right. So you're so removed from the piercing process. That's why all we can do is offer follow-up care and support to the best of our ability. But we can't fix that problem at that stage other than to give just ongoing support and care and jewellery maintenance. And I think that's where the disconnect is. The default is, you know, fix it. Fix this abscess sure. that I have without understanding that you can't. And well, one, one, sorry, go on. No, 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 you go ahead. The other thing that I wanted to add is that, again, as I mentioned earlier, I was met with a lot of hostility, even just in trying to vet cheek piercing clients with um, simple studio policies. There's also the thing of the follow-up care in terms of multiple downsizes costs money. So for clients in particular, you're, you're kind of expected to pay for multiple downsizes. And if you're trying to think, oh, my piercer is just trying to get more money out of me, they're really not. Cheap piercings, the swelling will go down very gradually. And if you're thinking, I'll save money by just waiting for my swelling to completely go down. Well, it's also not just the swelling going down. Mm -hmm. It's it, Once you get to a point where there really is no more swelling, the piercing also constricts over yeah. time. So even like if you have something that's perfectly fit once you're past the point of swelling, then you add another three months, six months, and the piercing will be constricting. The fistula will be will be tightening, and then they'll 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 always need slightly shorter jewelry, at least two to three times over the course of maybe the first one to two years. And I've experienced that with lip piercings as well. Lip piercings do the same kind of thing, where two downsize it isn't unusual at all, and people are almost kind of like, oh, so I have to come and get another one, and it's like. Yeah, yeah. Like it's not about getting more money out of you for this for this downsize. It's about the fact that if you keep in this extra long jewellery, now that it's two, three, four, five millimeters too long for you, 
the chance of you biting down on it and mm -hmm. doing thousands of pounds worth right. of dental damage because is it's very not high. Just, it's not just an end piece that could potentially touch your teeth or rub against your gums. It's an end piece that's in the, the direct point of where your top and lower teeth meet every time you're chewing or talking. Yeah. And if you're wearing inappropriately fit jewelry, you will bite it. You will damage your teeth. So you need to have properly fitting jewelry the entire time that you have those cheek piercings, which means multiple downsizes. You're really going to regret it if you don't get the multiple downsizes done. Right. And then you're just thinking, oh, I'll just leave it with this extra space. For one, you're leaving extra length for more debris to come into your cheeks to potentially develop abscesses. Mm -hmm. But the most immediate risk is that you chomp down on one of the, the backings of your, your piercings and shatter a tooth, which again, thousands of pounds. I mean, if you're having that done privately, if you're in the UK, you know, good luck getting a, an NHS dentist appointment for somebody that's going to do any kind of major reconstruction work other than to say, well, yeah, you, you had your cheeks pierced. You know, right. there was a risk in that. Well, it was so difficult for me to get people to do those. Like my first one or two or three sets of cheek piercings, my biggest difficulty um, was getting people to come back for downsizing. So as I started to kind of get into it a little bit, my my initial visit, the the charges would be the initial jewelry, the piercing fee and their first set of downsize posts. I would charge them all up front because I, that's how important um, I saw their downsizing as. So I'd say like, you're going to basically leave with a voucher for a, a free, not a free, but an included downsizing um, in whatever interval you need. We'll see you again in two weeks, two months, whenever you're, you're ready for it. Uh, and then when they would come back again, I would, I would always have to educate them, just so you know, this is probably not going to be your forever jewelry. This is really just your downsized jewelry once you're past the point of the initial swelling, but you will need further downsizing. And then it got to the point where people just weren't coming back for those, so I had to follow up with people, I had to call them, I had to email them and be like, please come in and please let me do this thing. Then I would have those financial barriers where they're like, well, I either just don't want to spend the, the money right now, or I can't spend the money, or it's not convenient for me to come in, and it's like, but I'm, I'm just trying to save you from shattering your teeth. Like it, it shouldn't be this difficult, but it was. So um, I also want to stop and I, I want to just kind of say, I, I apologize that sometimes when people listen to these episodes and all we talk about are maybe some of the negative sides of it or some of the frustration points, but like we, we are frustrated because we care so much about what we do and we care so much about our clients that when they maybe don't value themselves, or their, their you know, potential issues in the way that we value it, in the way that we kind of see it as an inevitability without the right sort of like maintenance and prevention, it gets very difficult because all we want to do is give people the best possible chance of healing. But unfortunately, sometimes that means additional investment of, of time or money or, or whatever. So uh, I know that sometimes we're kind of doom and gloom with these episodes. No. Believe it. Well, I like to think it's cathartic because, you know, it's mainly piercers that listen and maybe it's nice for them to be able to just hear that these problems are, are pretty universal and nobody's just having a magical time with it. Sure, sure. But uh, same kind of thing, though. You are experienced with cheek piercings and it would be a shame if you never, ever did some again or if you never, ever shared your information or helped maybe the next generation decide to either perform or, or not perform cheeks. But based on uh, on information and let them kind of decide for themselves. Like, I don't want to tell other piercers that they shouldn't do cheek piercings. I want to tell you that like, if you're up for it and if you're up for the investment of, of time that it takes to be able to properly offer, safely offer cheek piercings, 
absolutely totally do it because I'm not, <laughs> but you should. You should at least explore the thought process that goes into yes, I want to, or no, I would rather not. Like you should definitely explore that conversation. And I think as well, um, it's worth keeping in mind that if a piercer isn't offering something, it's it's never as simple as just, I'm not gonna do this anymore. They have tried, like I tried to make adaptation over adaptation to just keep doing something. And you know, it's the same with lots of other piercings that people remove from their service menu. It's never just a decision that's made in a day. It's a decision that they have tried over and over and over again to make this work because nobody wants to let their customers down. Nobody wants to be like, actually, you can't have that done here because it, you know you feel like you're disappointing people and you're letting them down. So piercers, you know, good piercers will overwhelmingly try and be accommodating and, and meet their clients' needs, even if it means learning new things and investing money and time into something. They're happy to do it. And people don't withdraw services unless they are just at the end of their rope with it. Right. And that's definitely the point I got to. I remember the, the person, I remember the last set of cheeks I did. And I remember, I, I won't mention what, but somebody came in, this was literally months and months after being pierced, with a condiment on their face like a kitchen condiment, like an edible kitchen condiment. And I'm not talking about salt, I'm talking about like a food on their face mm -hmm. because they'd heard that it, it would help. And I just remember being was like- Was it honey? I can't possibly say. It was but honey. I, I, I just remember thinking like, why, why, why have you done that? Oh, here's here's the easy answer, because the internet said so. But th that was just the point at which, and again, it was for help and support, and I was just like, I don't know. Side note, I want to talk about the honey thing really quick, because I also had that. There was, there were multiple conversations with different things that should go um, into your digestive tract and not onto your piercing that I have seen people come into my studio with, because the internet said so. And one of, like, I think the, the logical thought process behind it was like, royal honey can be anti-inflammatory, antimicrobial or whatever. And it's like, yeah, we're, we're talking about like the food itself might be bacteria static where it won't grow a bunch of mold if you're leaving it on the, you know, in, in the cupboard for a long time. That doesn't mean you should slather it all over your body piercing. I'm sorry. I've also seen medicinal honey being used in, in veterinary, vet, veterinary care mm -hmm. in, in the past, again, in a completely different way. Sure. And, um, it was just, I don't, see, that I don't like to talk about specific people because I don't want it to seem like I just spat my dummy out of the pram and was like, I'm not doing this anymore. But it was just the end of a long line of like, I don't know what to do. Sure. To, and, and it's not that people aren't going to make mistakes, but it's, it's the lack of ownership over those mistakes mm -hmm. that kind of pushes you over the edge to the point where you're like, there's nothing else I can right. tell you. There's nothing else I can do. <laughs> I can just imagine Lola like already being slightly frustrated, slightly over it with cheek piercings. And then somebody comes in with like a, a condiment all over their piercing as, as like a, a, a troubleshooting method and just being like, that's it. I'm done. No more cheek piercings for me. Um, and the thing is, you can't control what someone does when they leave. It's their body. It's their decision-making process. And I'm okay with that. And you have to accept that. You you can't micromanage people's care. Once they leave, it's up to them to, to do the thing. And you're there in an auxiliary capacity to give follow-up care and support. But I think that there's more of a need than ever to understand that informed consent isn't just about 
getting the words out and getting people to sign a thing. It's getting the client to understand that they're giving informed consent because I don't think they know they are. I, I think they just think- I honestly don't think people know what informed consent means. So, in informed consent is that you have been told expressly what could potentially go wrong and it's not a million to one chance it might be a, a one in five you never know you know like you can you can kind of emphasize certain things or you can kind of nudge them towards a certain likelihood or whatever but at this at the end of the day you have to say like it's not that these things are a hypothetical these are things that do happen to people and you need to understand that this could happen to you yeah um i think that's that's maybe where the kind of gap is right now is even when you're doing the informed consent like you're and a lot of people aren't even doing that but you should be obtaining informed consent by giving that information verbally and in writing um the the gap is that clients don't seem to understand they're giving informed consent which yeah. is that's a whole other problem yeah let's so that's let's, that's more challenging i think now than it has been in the past yeah okay well um i think this is a good place to wind down the, the cheek piercing. Well, I'm ready to do cheek piercings again. I don't know about you. <laughs> that's Can't why, wait. That's why when you said like, "Oh, I'm thinking about doing it again," it's like, really? Let's let's have this conversation well, so you yeah, can I'm, remember why you stopped doing them. I am in a different place though. Like I'm in a different business. It's private. Like sure. I can I can manage things a little bit differently, but it's I know that it's going to be challenging. Mm -hmm. um, See, so. I'm in the same place. So I'm like, n nothing has changed about my circumstances. So it's like those factors, I mean, other than the fact that I'm appointment only now, all the circumstances are the same. I'm still in the same city. I'm still in the same studio. I'm still using the same jewelry and aftercare and all that stuff. And so it's like, I, I feel that just for me, if I started offering them again, I would have the same problems again. And I'm really just not willing to go down that road again right now. Yeah. The end of cheek piercings. Hi everybody, thanks for sticking around with us, and if you would like to stick your clients with a little less tissue trauma, you can come to my Sunday, August 20th, 2023 webinar all about bevel theory. To get more info or to sign up, visit my website at ryanpba.com. Okay, so um, the, last, the last section that I want to talk about, it's probably going to be short comparatively, but I want to talk about dermal punching, and I know that even just saying that is going to be kind of a red flag for some body piercers. Depending on what region you're in, there might be legal issues. I don't want to get too far into that, but number one, you want to understand the, the, the terminology of when I say dermal punch. I'm typically meaning um, a larger size chamfer needle. So it'll be a cylindrical blade. They were, they were super commonplace again through the 90s, through the early 2000s, in that whole like BME era, that whole like modern primitives era, I think a lot of studios, maybe not all, but a lot of studios had dermal punches. Uh, some people might refer to them as biopsy punches, but I would try to get you to never ever say that terminology in your studio because that can be the legal line. Sometimes uh, if, if your health department, if your regulatory body sees it as a medical device, you, there might be legal liability issues. In New Hampshire, where I am, the use of dermal punches are not expressly forbidden. They're really just not mentioned at all in, in body art regulation. There are certain banned practices in New Hampshire, um, but they're not really body piercing. They're, they're body art adjacent, things like tongue splits, Things like implants are expressly not permitted in New Hampshire. 
Um, but other than that, there's not a lot of terminology when it comes to how body piercings of various sizes are created, are performed. Um, but you have some legal liability issues here in the UK that are pretty specific, right? There's nothing specific about anything in the UK. Oh. Every every 20 miles is a different set of, of guidelines and, and rules. So I think that there's probably a lot of, uh, of different risks in different areas when you're working in terms of legal liability. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the big one, uh, and I heard this from Sean Powell um, from Empire in uh, Brighton. He was, he was the former UKPP president. He told me this years ago. So sorry, Sean, if this is wrong. Um, <clears throat> but I'm sure I heard from him that tissue above a certain size can't be thrown in the bin which isn't massive oversimplification, but basically you can't be removing a chunk of skin from someone above a certain size and then disposing of it because it becomes a disposing of human tissue issue. Okay. Which can't, yeah. So does that um, mean that it can't go in the standard bin, but it can go in like a red bag? Or does that mean that, you, you can't even put it in a red bag? Well, that's the thing. Like, well, There's different types of waste disposal here in the UK for all different kinds of clinical waste. Yeah. And disposing of human tissue isn't really something that a piercing studio is required to be doing typically. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that the general consensus was that um, dermal punching below a certain size, you know, the kind of two, three, four mil, the size that you could easily make with a needle um, would be something that a lot of different places might be able to offer. But once you're talking about things like big, big, big amounts of tissue, zero gauge, I think that there is more of, a, of an issue there in terms of the potential for... Um, criminal action to be taken right. not just into i mean because of waste disposal that could be a potential avenue for a local authority to persecute you if they weren't happy with you offering that service yeah like i'm not saying it's about the tissue disposal i'm saying that well i, if, I don't want to go too far down this well, path but this is what i'm saying it's hard yeah. to talk about without talking about all of those offshoots yeah um so maybe it's best that we don't talk about it as a uk thing so much because body modification is pretty much just criminalized here now. Yeah, well, um, oh yeah, so that, that's another thing too. You know, over the last few years, um, some, some lines have been drawn rather starkly about work that piercers feel safe offering within UK studios because of different legal liability issues with different arrests that have been, that have been made and, and threats of arrest and all these different things. So mm -hmm. in the United States, as far as the disposal goes, um, in New Hampshire, it's basically biological waste if it can uh, leak uh, biological material under pressure. So that means like if you put so much blood into a trash bag that that trash bag could leak even one drop of blood, then that's biological hazard. It has to be handled with a, a medical waste disposal company, a red bag, um, a bag with a, a, a shark, you know, a biohazard label on it. But if not, if we're talking about like a little bit of blood on the end of a Q-tip or a little bit of blood on gauze or on like a, a paper towel from like a tattoo service, like that's not biological waste in New Hampshire. So that's a, a pretty specific issue that let, maybe let's just leave it. But I'm mostly talking about um, the, the size of the hole and the instrument used to make that hole. Uh, for the last several years in my studio, I've kind of had like a soft cap of like eight gauge or six gauge for my uh, initial piercings because I can perform all those with just a standard needle. Um, so I don't really even have to think about any sort of other issues. But um, some piercers that were very forward thinking, they would say like, I still want 
the, the functionality of a, of a chamfer needle, of a cylindrical blade. So that's when, you know, the, the advent of O-needles and chamfer needles, uh, companies like Industrial Strength LLC, who's like one of the, the world's top body piercing needle manufacturers, they now make chamfer needles, which are that cylindrical blade, but they're pretty limited in size. I think they only make them up to 14 gauge, maybe 12 gauge. I know that O-needles are only available in that similar size range, you know, 18 gauge to 12 gauge kind of stuff. But um, just like everything comes back around again because of fashion reasons, because of whatever other interests, uh, I've been getting more and more inquiries lately about people asking for much larger initial piercings. Um, through the 90s, through the 2000s, you would have things like dermal punched piercings, scalpeled piercings, things like that. Uh, if there's a, a legal limitation for you that says you're expressly not able to, to do this, then you're not doing it in your area unless you're, you know, one of those like outlaw mentality kind of people, which, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's your risk that you're running. Um, in, in my state, since I don't have uh, any sort of rules expressly saying I can't do that, it's kind of falling on me as the body piercer to make my own determinations. And I've determined that it's, it's just not something I've wanted to offer for the last few years. But again, I've been getting these emails about people saying, I really want two gauge conch pierce piercings. I really want a zero gauge flat on my, my cartilage. I really want, I really want. And like, yes, you, you can start with a, a needle, you can stretch over time, but you know, as someone that, that's, that's gone down that path, um, my original conch piercings were the, 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 bottom of my conch. It was a vertical conch piercing on just the lower portion of my conch. Pierced them initially with 14 gauge and over time I stretched them up to 2 gauge and they were never really comfortable because it was putting that that outward pressure. Stretching cartilage isn't really like stretching uh, soft tissue. Like stretching an earlobe, your body is generating new soft tissue to expand that piercing. When we're talking about cartilage, I would I would phrase it more like erosion rather than stretching because you're eroding the cartilage to put in a larger size eroding. and a larger size. Eroding. Eroding. Eroding the cartilage. Do I say that funny too? No, everything how, you say is funny to me. How do you say it as a fucking smarty pants UK person? Eroding. That's what I said, eroding. Eroding. Eroding the cartilage to put in a larger and larger size. And it, it's a very slow process uh, compared to stretching soft tissue. If you wanted to go from 14 gauge to two gauge in an earlobe, you could safely do that in, I don't know, would you say a year? Heel piercing only? Sure. You could probably do that in a year. If you tried to go from 14 gauge to two gauge in a conch piercing in a year, you'd have really, really sore ears. You'd probably have a ring of scar tissue. You'd probably have some little issues that you wouldn't be happy with. So, um, over time, when I was more experienced with like different kinds of, of piercing, exposed to more things through BME and through the internet, I was like, you know what? I want some uh, standard placement conch piercing, some ones that, you know, faced backwards rather than, than vertical. Uh, I just punched them and I punched them on myself. I didn't have anybody else do it. I punched my conches myself at, at two gauge and uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot the hard way. Uh, about how to perform it, how to heal it, all those things. And it's really not something that I want to just offer as a service to my, my clientele because it was very um, healing intensive. It was very like troubleshooting intensive. I had to make a lot of tweaks. I had to change jewelry multiple times, a little bit bigger, a little bit longer, a little bit shorter, different materials, all these different things to get them to a finish line where they were perfectly happy and healthy. So I have these people that have been emailing me over the last 
probably six weeks. I think I've had three different people um, email me asking about dermal punching specifically. Larger stuff, two gauge and larger. And it's one of those things where one side of my brain says like, yeah, I could totally do that. And it's been a while since I've done that and I would love to do that. But then the other side of my head says, says like, well, if I'm not doing something like a cheek piercing because of these smaller scale but very predictable problems, do I really want to offer something like a dermal punch on a client who is very, very removed from that BME generation of people that were like, I'm willing to experiment, I'm willing to accept the consequences of my decisions, I'm willing to offer that informed consent. But they might have had some friends that went through it. They might have had some more experience with other people that, that went through it. Uh, they might have had more access to their piercer for regular checkups. And they might be more open-minded to maybe things being a little bit more challenging for healing. And I don't know if, if today's modern client is as open to those things. Um, if you were to offer a dermal punch for someone and it were to become problematic... Is that something where they're going to try to walk through your door to fix it? Or are they going to try to go to urgent care or an ER to fix it? Uh, are they going to try to go to another studio that has absolutely no idea what, what happened there? And then is that studio going to be like, well, Ryan's just irresponsible for doing this. This is dangerous. I want to try to like rat him out to, to somebody. I, again, it's not an illegal practice where I'm, where I'm practicing. But like all these what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. And it's not like it's a regular client or a friend or a colleague asking me to do it. It's a, a completely unknown person who's just emailed me, who I've never had a face-to-face -face conversation with. Um, one of them you know, said that they were a tattooer, they were in the industry. So I, I got to the point where I was like, well, send me some pictures of your ears anyway. I'll take a look at your ears. But we kind of left it there. We didn't talk about jewelry. We didn't talk about yes or no or pricing or anything because it's all still hypothetical. I'm still mulling it over. And I don't know. I don't know if I'm comfortable doing it in this day and age. And it's not a legal liability issue. It's like our clients prepared for the level of challenge healing certain things that um, haven't been popular for a decade or more. And I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I think that there is, like you say, that disconnect there between um, all that stuff that you listed, all of that, that stuff that we go through that we think about in terms of what does this mean for me and my business and my reputation if things don't go well, even if I do my absolute best. That's something that we take on board every time we're doing something. And not just the big stuff, but the, the little stuff as well. Um, and I think that not really any consideration is going to be given to that by 99% of the public. Like uh, a couple of months ago, I went and got my face tattooed. I didn't have anything on my face previously. And there was only one person I really wanted to do it. And when I reached out to them, I was like, listen, I haven't been in with you before. I know some people don't like doing this. You know, that's that's fine. Just let me know. And everything about it was like, I totally understand if this person wants to say no. And, that, and it's You gave like, them an out. Yeah, I was like, if you know, if you're not wanting to do it, or maybe if you want me to like get back in touch with you in a few months or even next year or whatever, like I don't mind waiting however long it is. And I think that if you work as within the community in some capacity or have done, you get that side of things. Like you get that you're you're not just asking someone to do a job; you're asking for something a little bit more than that. Um, and I think that that's that's a relationship that isn't as common as it once was, not when I started piercing and certainly not when you started piercing. And I think that um, there's something that we just keep coming back to and keep coming back to and it is just the idea of consent 
um, and, and how that goes both ways um, when you're offering these services. Uh, I, I pierced my, I, I uh, did a dermal punch on my Helix um, years and years ago at five mil and uh, I didn't keep it in for very long. But That's what, four gauge? Uh, I think it's about four gauge. Po yeah, possibly. Yeah. And um, I, I remember, I still remember the feeling of like, how, sorry, I just did a tall burp into burp. the microphone there. Um, I remember the feeling of uh, how hot it is when your own blood starts going everywhere. And I've had that with a couple of different piercings, but like it's a very specific, very soupy feeling. <laughs> <laughs> like someone's dumped a bowl of soup over your ear all of a sudden <laughs> and there's like a visceralness to it that's that's hard to describe and but, the smell um yeah but with these things it's like yeah it is it is a little bit different i mean in one way it's it's easy to say like well these are all just services that we're offering and but in another way like i think that you do cross a different line with people and we do look for those connections where people seem to understand that they're asking you for something that's just a little bit more. Um, and so you give a little bit more back. Um, so yeah, I think that, that that's something that I'll need to take into consideration if there are services that I'm going to start offering again is just kind of extending things and framing things in that way so that clients understand. Because they seem to get it a lot more now with the general work that I'm doing. Um, so, you know. Well, when it comes to a genital piercing, when it comes to anything like, let's say up to eight gauge, six gauge, something needle specific, you take that out and you're not going to have that large of a gaping hole. You know, within an hour or a couple of hours, it's going to be swollen shut. Uh, and essentially, you're, you're, you know, the, 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 the chance of a greater problem developing is kind of gone. You take it out, you abandon it, the healing begins. If you're talking about something as thick as a pencil, as thick as a finger, and you take it out, like it's not gonna just swell closed in a couple of hours. It's not gonna just close up. You have a, a gaping hole. And it's just, you know, it's one of those things where it, I don't know that I, even when I can just kind of say it out loud now, I'm probably gonna have to email these people back and, and decline the services. And I, I wanna tell a story about when I pierced my conscious. I punched, actually punched my conscious. So I uh, punched them with a two gauge punch and I put in two gauge jewelry. And I think people that have some experience know how stupid of a mistake that was because um, I didn't put any additional pressure on the wound. So they just bled and bled and bled and bled and bled. And then two days went by and it's not like I was like pouring blood, but I was seeping, I was weeping blood for two days. Um, and, uh, so I wanted to st stretch them up to zero gauge two days after I did them to just put some pressure on them to just get them to stop fucking bleeding. Um, and I did not have any zero gauge plugs in the shop. The only zero gauge jewelry I had in my whole shop were acrylic CBRs that I won at a raffle at conference from industrial strength who used to make zero gauge acrylic CBRs. So um, imagine how uncomfortable this scenario would be. Not only did I shove through a two gauge hole punch through my conch and then put in jewelry and then live with it for two days. Two days later, I took out that plug and shoved a zero gauge taper through that hole, stretched it open, which is a big jump from two gauge to zero gauge in fresh cartilage. And then I wedged in a three quarter inch, uh, one was blue and one was purple, which I still have today. Um, I shoved those after the taper into my conches and I just had to wear those for about a week until the zero gauge plugs I ordered 
um, arrived. So um, I, I shoved those in, it was miserable, couldn't sleep, uh, couldn't really like do anything, had to work like that and looked really stupid. Um, they were just disgusting and scabby. Over time they healed, I ended up dropping them down to two gauge to take some of the pressure off my cartilage. Um, and now they're like probably my favorite piercing. I absolutely love my large conch piercings, but uh, imagine if that's a client. Imagine if you're like, um, if you don't know that, you know, if you're gonna pier uh, punch somebody's cartilage, you better have about double the wearable length that you would normally do with a, a needle piercing. Um, just in case because like conches get really puffy when you punch them uh, they can get pretty problematic imagine if you don't have that longer jewelry uh, in in stock what's going to happen you know if they have to go to another shop and then that shop doesn't have the longer jewelry what's going to happen so i don't want to be doom and gloom again but i just want to put these thoughts in your mind where if you're thinking about like maybe i'll try it maybe i won't uh you, you better be prepared and you better be prepared for the the consequences and the troubleshooting that might come up and not just the glory of maybe getting some money for it, maybe getting a, a picture on Instagram with it. Like you better be ready for the, for the troubleshooting and the, the responsibility um, to get somebody to a, a, a resolution. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's good that we talked about some of this stuff. Yeah. And it's like, I, as you were saying earlier, um, I know that sometimes we do veer more towards the negative and I think that's just our personalities. If people don't like it, they can just piss off. <laughs> but I think that, you know, like publicly on Instagram, on Facebook, on TikTok and all that kind of stuff, there's this sense of like always put forward your happy peppy self where mm. everything's great and everything's wonderful. That's and why we're not on TikTok. We're gonna we're gonna pierce everything and everything's just gonna be awesome. And it's just it's nice to have an outlet to actually talk long form about like some of these complicated issues but and it's like honest. Yeah, and just to kind of like lay some of that stuff out in a way that you can't in an Instagram tile. Sure. Like you can't make an Instagram tile that expresses the complexities of the relationships that you go through with clients. Nuance. You have to, you have, to have long, long relationships with who potentially you'll be interacting with when you embark on something like cheap piercings. You know, that's you signing up to spend a year working with that client if everything goes well even. Um, or you might do the work and you might never see them again. You just don't know what's going to happen. Um, and in a way, yeah, when I do a nostril piercing, I could end up doing six health checks on it. They could have every problem under the sun because sometimes that's just how things go. Um, but I think that, you know, there are just certain things that we offer where there's a little bit more of a, of a contract that exists between you and the person that you're working on. Yeah. And getting the balance right in that is really, really important, even if people yell at you because they have to take two buses. Well, a mark of professionalism is that you would never explicitly or implicitly, internally or externally say, that's not my problem. Like, you did it. It's your problem. You, you know, like, you, you have to be there for the client. Good, bad, or somewhere in between. Like, you have to be there for the client. And if you can't be or if you're not willing to be, you shouldn't be taking on that kind of responsibility. Well, one thing that I want to add before we finish is that this is something that I was speaking to, um, I think with my apprentice at work the other day, is that what it is, is now more than ever, there's this very strong need to assign blame that just doesn't exist to me. Like for example, I'll give you an example that's really common. A client comes in and they have a problem with their piercing and they're immediately like, oh, it must be because of this thing. And then mm -hmm. they'll list something that's kind of like not their fault. Right. And it's almost like, 
I don't know if they do it because they think you're going to get them into trouble or if they're doing it because they're annoyed as a consumer or what it is. But there's always this thing in my head where I'm like, it doesn't matter. I mm -hmm. mean, like, I mean, it matters what happened, sure. But like, I'm not mad there's a problem. Right. Like, I get that you're frustrated and upset that there's a problem, but I don't care if it's, right. I mean, I care if it's my fault for sure. But like, I don't care if it's your fault. If a client comes in and they're like, listen, I've fucked up everything to do with my piercing. I did everything wrong. I'll still help them. So like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me, but there's like this overwhelming need now to assign blame in every situation that you know I think is is an even bigger worry when we're talking about this type of work where the, yeah, the stakes are higher the scarring is greater the risks are greater I mean I've even had people come in in the past and say I want cheek piercings for the scarring and I've had to explain you mean for the dimples yeah I've had yeah. to explain to people well we don't know exactly how they're going to scar. You could have hyperpigmentation. Maybe you'll get that, like, you know, pulling in, that dimpling. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll just get, like... A lump. A, a lump. You know, like, we don't know. We can't predict how something is going to scar. Like, you, um, you've had your cheeks pierced, and you have, like, very different a very different mark on one right. side versus and the other. And one of them had an abscess. And that's and that abscess left a, a bigger, more prominent scar, so they're asymmetric. And it's like I'm I'm fine with it. It's the least. I mean, look at it, it's the least of my worries. But it, it's like being okay with it and really understanding that risk is is something that I had going into it. So I think that that sense of assigning like this has to be somebody's fault. And I'm like, well, sometimes things are nobody's fault. Sometimes things that's just how they go, you know. Mm -hmm. And. I think that that's something that I try and express more to clients now is like, listen, this might happen and we can do our best to try and make sure that it doesn't, but it still might. And that's, that's just the way things go sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whenever somebody comes in with a whole like lack of blame thing, I always like to start every troubleshooting conversation with like, this is a, a, a zero judgment zone. Like just, you know, I'm not going to judge you. Right. Have you been touching it? Have you put anything on it other than saline? You know, or all these other things. I always want to, I want to let people know that I'm not going to be mad at them regardless of what their answer is. I just want them to give me an honest answer so that I have the proper information to base my thought process and my troubleshooting on. But, uh, so I would like to say thank you to my lovely co-host. You are welcome. Lola Slider for talking to me for a really long time yeah. about a couple of subjects um, just to kind of put it out there again I've got a new video on uh, patreon.com slash Ryan PBA all about tongue piercing showing a lot of different examples and a lot of different information that was uh, previously included on a, on a seminar uh, including a handout so go ahead and check that out at patreon.com slash Ryan PBA and I've got loads of other information coming lots of other videos planned out for the next several months so go ahead and check it out I would love it uh, we've got some ideas for uh, some podcasts going forward. Anything else you wanted to say? Um, no. Okay. How about <laughs> I love you? Jeez. Um, okay. Uh, I love you, people that are listening. <laughs> You're all great. I'll um, kill them! <laughs> uh, Alright, thanks for listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast. We'll be back soon. Bye! For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved. Oh, you know what? I think that's where it's been this whole time. I think once I tap the record button, there's like a couple seconds um, 
I think there's like a couple seconds pause once I hit the record button. Anyway, this is your talk for me, please. Hello, my more. name is Lola, and I am a piercer, and I'm your girlfriend, okay. and I like your butt. Thank, thank you. It's so big and round. Thank you. You don't have to talk about butt no more. All right, uh, this is your volume. How high do you want it? Is that? That's okay. Three? Good. I can hear myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you want it louder or quieter whilst we record. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's quite loud. Is it? Maybe down a tiny bit so I don't... Because otherwise I'm going to whisper so I don't do my own head in. It's whisper quiet. It's whisper quiet. It's waffers in. Okay. All right. Do you feel ready? Uh, yep. Okay. You got your tea? Yep. Okay. All right. Well, well, I feel like I have to have this closer to my face. Hello. Hello. Hi. Okay. Hi. Welcome back to the Piercing Wizard podcast. I'm going to put it over here because if I'm looking at you, I want to make sure that it, <clears throat> I'm directionally talking correct, correctly. 